This is our first Sunday in 2024. Um, <clears throat> this morning, I'm going to kind of follow up a little bit. We started in looking at Philippians chapter 3 last week, and as I said, it's a great passage for the last Sunday of the year and the first Sunday of the year because Paul kind of brings these two things together, the idea of forgetting what's behind and moving and pursuing and leaning into what lies ahead. Uh, last week we talked about what's behind, and this week we're going to talk about what it means to press into what lies ahead. And uh, as we do this, we're going we're gonna to start in Philippians, but we're going to end in Hebrews. One of the things that have been such a blessing, particularly since the pandemic, because during the pandemic, churches all across America, their attendance trends shifted significantly. And we are also a congregation that attendance trends uh, uh, shifted. Uh, I'm even, I am more aware that there's very much a conversation uh, going on uh, with uh, people in the congregation that aren't physically here, but they are just as much engaged uh, wherever they may be uh, watching online, hopefully with some stretchy pants and a cup of coffee. And, um, but uh, one of the things that's happened is we've got some new members of our community, new friends, new people that are around. And really, I would try, I'd rather say new friends than new members of the congregation because a lot of you have taken time to reach out to me and spend at least maybe a time of coffee or a meal with me. And so my, my, my circle of acquaintances and friendships have, have grown significantly over the past three years. And even to, it's just a blessing to stand up and look across the congregation and just see such wonderful, friendly faces and just even remember conversations that we've had over the past three years um, here and there. But one of the things that uh, a few of the folks have said to me, one of the themes is that sometime during the conversation, they say something like, but I'm still trying to figure you out. And uh, I just haven't quite put my finger on where you're coming from. Well, this morning is going to be my best attempt to try to explain to you exactly where I'm coming from. Because one of the things that's different about this church is that we are an interdenominational church, which means we are not championing a particular systematic theology or ideology that in order to be a part of our group, you have to adhere to that kind of thinking. That's not how we're doing things. We see ourselves as a community under the large umbrella of Jesus Christ. And we want to learn from one another and that in, includes affirming and appreciating all of our various backgrounds, not getting into debates as to why you should think like me or defend myself and why I'm not going to think like you. That's not what we do here. And it's not that we don't have some commonality of conviction, because we do. It's just that we want to take a minimalist approach to those core issues so that there's room for diversity and, and learning from one another, not just tolerating one another, but appreciating the backgrounds that we all represent and how that we can learn from one another. That's why, for me, the greatest uh, uh, discipleship or learning environment at Christ Community Church isn't the classes that we offer, but the tables that we sit around. That, that is our model for discipleship. Life transformation doesn't happen in a classroom. It happens across tables, hopefully with good hot beverages to sip on. But my approach is this, and I do not in any way to pretend to have uh, mastered this, but if there is an ideology, it is this. 
My desire is for us to be encouraged to grow in faithfulness to Jesus in the revelation of the new covenant. To grow in faithfulness to Jesus via the revelation of the new covenant. And that's the part that was often missing in the churches I grew up in. We read the Bible flat and, I, flat, and I didn't really hear about a lot of distinctions between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Consequently, there was this weird discipleship created that kind of blended both of them together. And I'm not condemning that. I didn't, I'm not saying I didn't learn from that. But what I am saying, it didn't recognize that there is a distinction and that the New Covenant is intended to replace the Old Covenant. It's the new thing that God is doing, and there's a new understanding to be appreciated about the heart of God and the character of God whenever we make those distinctions. Secondly, it also makes a lot more sense of our New Testament because they are very much preoccupied with articulating the distinctions between what it means to be a people of God under the Old Covenant and then to have someone say, now that Old Covenant is passing away, the New Covenant has come. And by the way, it's not just for us, it's also for all the other Gentile nations as well. And so this is creating a lot of debates and people are having discussions and letters are being written to try to wrap their heads around what does the culture look like now in light of that revelation? So, so there's a lot of ink spilt in our New Testament, and it's about this very issue. And I don't think that we talk about it enough. And so we're going to land in Hebrews so that we can just walk through this declaration and revelation of the glories of this new covenant. And so that's really what I'm coming from. Therefore, I don't foresee any time in my future where I'm going to be wearing the T-shirt of any particular systematic theology. I did that before in my youth, and I was very zealous, and I was happy to destroy you if you didn't want to wear my T-shirt. And that is something for which I have come under embarrassment, little shame, and conviction, and luckily forgiveness. So I don't really perceive there ever being a season going forward where I'm going to wear the T-shirt of a systematic theology or of a particular ideology. However, I hope that as I mature, I'm learning to become a humble student of all of them. I don't want to demonize them and, and, and act as if I can't learn from everyone. I feel like that I can, knowing that I'll have some disagreements and that ultimately the only T-shirt I want to wear is a man falteringly seeking to be faithful to Jesus. And that's the T-shirt I have on. That's the one I'm committed to. And that's the one I would encourage uh, all of us to consider. So as we look at this, we'll start with our text that we looked at last week, where Paul simply says here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, oh, you guys are in trouble. My speaker clock didn't start when I first hit it, so I just get all those minutes because I'm not going to change it now. Um, Okay, Philippians 3, it says this, I pursue as my goal this prize, the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. If you want to be biblical and quote more scripture, just pull that phrase out. I love it. So as I get much debate, I'll say, you know, I don't think we, we, we need to continue this. When you mature, I believe you will think this way. And we can just leave it at that. Try that with your spouse the next time you're in an argument. And then sit, let me know how that works. Uh, <laughs> and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you. In any case, look verse 16. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained, 
reaching forward to what is ahead. What I want to highlight from that paragraph this morning is this focus and tension that we see in verse 14. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now here is where a revelation of the new covenant will begin to make a difference in the way we nuance our theological convictions. What I want to present before you for your consideration is the idea that we are not pursuing to become someone new. We are pursuing to align with the new we have become. We are not pursuing to become someone new. We are pursuing to align with the new we have become. Therefore, I would suggest that you stop striving to become and start seeking to align. And that might, those, just, those are just a few words, but the nuanced difference is significant. Because when you are seeking to try to become something new, or really the phrase that I had, used to love when I was younger that I don't like very much anymore now, self-improvement. You are beginning with the assumption of deficiency. And so you are becoming with doubt in the promise of the new covenant at that point. That's where that's your starting place. Because the new covenant promises a whole different prize, which is I'm just going to give you a new heart. I'm just going to change who you are, and I'm not even going to remember your sins. But I dare say it's hard to find believers that live that way. We still continue to be defined by our sin and deficiency, and we're trying to do the things. Maybe it's memorizing some more scripture verses, attending another Bible study, or doing these kind of church activities so that maybe we can attain some sort of deservedness so that we can improve ourselves. And so we begin with the statement of non-faith in the new covenant from the very beginning. But if we say, no, my discipleship is about me trying to learn how I can align with the new that I become. I am not saying, just like Paul doesn't say in chapter 3, that we've attained it, but we are working from a different perspective because what we're trying to do is to align our, our mind, will, and emotions with the truth of what God has given us as a gift of the new covenant because of the redemption secured through Jesus Christ. And so... Where I'm beginning is not, where I, is not that I'm lacking. I'm beginning with, I have all that I need. I just got to get this thing lined up with the truth of it. And so that's what I mean by those two distinctions. And I do think that it's significantly different. I think that the level of being on this roller coaster of shame and acceptance goes away when we realize that's not the discussion God is having with us. He sees us as his son or daughter who has been equipped with his laws on our hearts. And if we would begin with that assumption, then we would understand, if I can use this word, it's a little bit sloppy and it might be misunderstood, so please forgive me if it is. We'll discuss it over a Reuben. But I don't like self-improvement. What I like is self-expansion. I don't need to improve myself. Here's the thing, my false self just needs to go away. It doesn't need to be improved. But my true self, it needs to be allowed to take over and expand in the way that I think and the way that I behave. 
So we are not pursuing to become someone new. We are pursuing to align with the new that we have become. The new covenant is not an achievement. It is a gift. The new covenant is not an achievement. It is a gift. So we're going to spend the rest of our time here in Hebrews. And the Hebrew writer is actually quoting from one of the major prophets. I'm a little embarrassed to say it that way. In fact, I, I had a moment of panic during worship, and I thought I would Google the information. But I decided just to be honest and say sometimes I forget. It's either Jeremiah or Isaiah. If you have a nifty study Bible, you're welcome to yell out the answer. If you're watching online, hey, Google it and put it in the comments. That's fine with me. But it's Jeremiah or Isaiah that he's quoting from. In other words, an old covenant prophet foresaw the day that we are now living in. We should not be living with the same sense of desperate longing as the old covenant prophet because we are living in the days of fulfillment. We should be joyfully happy Christians living out this gift that we have been given. So the writer of Hebrews writes about the new covenant. And uh, if you have your notes, you'll see where um, uh, the text is in bold, and that's where he's quoting from the Old Testament prophets. So we'll start with verse 7. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to read through this whole passage very quickly, and then I want us to take just a few minutes to walk through the passage. Because I don't really want you to leave here feeling like you have to think like I think. But you have to know what you think about what the Scripture says about the New Covenant. You don't have to articulate it like I do. But you do have to know what you think about it. And my concern is most believers have never even been challenged with what are their convictions of what the new covenant reality means. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's read through it very quickly and then we'll walk through it. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their sisters, uh, their sisters, their ancestors, on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen. And each brother or sister saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Now, one little point of theological clarification for the handful of nerds in the room. I'm among you. 
I meant no disrespect. Remember, he is quoting an old covenant prophet who is foreseeing the day of a new covenant time. So you might ask, but this is about Judah and Israel, Judah and the ancestors of, of, of Judah and the house of Israel, to which I would say, good job. Honoring context is the first move in understanding the scripture. Here's where the jump happens. The, actually, the whole book of Hebrews, the reason why it's called Hebrews, is that he's, the author is striving to help the Hebrew believers understand this transition of Old Covenant to New Covenant. Why is that relevant to us if we're reading a book that's written to Hebrew Christians in the first century? Because of the book of Romans. Because the book of Romans is the grand treatise where Paul makes the case, this new covenant may have been assumed to have been for one people group, but the great revelation of the last days is that new covenant is not like the old. It is not exclusive. It is an inclusive covenant that will be for all the Gentiles as well. This is where we get uh, brought into the last third of the story of the book that we read. We're, we're only in it the last third. The two-thirds are not about us, but we get included in the last third of the book. And that's the, well, that's the whole case that Paul is trying to make to believers of the first century is that the revelation is this, is this new covenant is for everyone. This is why he says, I've been commissioned as an apostle of the Gentiles. And in Colossians, he said, because I'm here to reveal a mystery. This is for the Gentiles as well. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So as fellow Gentiles, we are going to read this and understand that because of the sometimes complexity of the New Testament, this is the, this is the primary issue that they're communicating, and this is what they're working out. And so therefore, this covenant, though first prophesied during, uh, by an old covenant prophet to the, uh, the nation of Israel, is inclusive of us today. And so, again, if that was, that was really quick, if you want to dive more into that, then let's get together. Eat, drink, and discuss. So, let's go back now and walk through this text. Not so much the first part of it. I just want to start down in verse 10 and following. I'm going to offer some insights that have been encouraging to me. But again, I want to emphasize, we are not an ideological dictatorship, and this is not a church where you're obligated to believe everything that the pastor believes. I, I, I've got a particular responsibility to, to serve you and work for your edification and equipping, and I will try to do that as best I can. But beyond that, we're just all fellow travelers together. And so at the end of the day, what's most important is the conclusions that you begin to come to, I just want to encourage you, have some conclusions. So verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Do you believe this is true? Or 
because of misapplied old covenant scriptures do you believe your heart is wicked and you can't trust it whatever that old covenant sentiment may have been communicating it cannot be used to undermine the glorious revelation of the new covenant if God has chosen to write his laws on your heart you better learn to begin to listen to your heart and you better stop demonizing it and you ought to create room to recognize that authoritative voice that God has written internally inside of you and understand that the nearest place of authority is sought within not through some outer structure of arbitrary authority or institution. Now, these things can be useful to help equip us in that journey. I'm not saying that. But I am saying we need to rethink the way we demonize the idea of following your heart. You ought to follow your heart because that's where God has written his laws. Look at that. I put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. It's just, it's an illustration that the new covenant reality is an internal reality, not an external reality to which we're trying to conform, but but an internal reality to which we're trying to align. Do you see the difference? And, and this is the promise of the new covenant. So you, you've got to ask yourself, do I believe this is true? Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place to grow in discernment and to understand the difference between listening to my random stream of consciousness and paying attention to the voice of God within. No, there's a skill to be learned in that. I am just saying that that begins on a journey that should take us inward. It should take us into a regular practice of quiet, a regular practice of silence, because we've got to fight for that space if we're ever going to learn to listen to what's going on in here. So that's significantly different than what I got by blending Old Covenant and New Covenant principles together growing up. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 11, this is a real doozy. (laughs) I mean, for me, when I read this, I'm like, I'm an evangelical that lives and dies by the idea of the Great Commission. And this seems to challenge this idea. How do I work that out? And I eventually kind of worked that out, but that's another story in another sermon or something we can have over Reuben. Um, And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest among them. Now, I am not saying that there are never seasons where we're not aware of the presence of God. We're not aware of the knowing of God. There are certainly seasons of that. But it's the paradigm of thinking that that there's a period of time we're living kind of like outside of God's intimacy. And then if we make the right ideological belief commitment, we are now in God's intimacy. That isn't true. God knows us before we're aware of him. God knows us before we know him. 
and God is already reaching out and something internally is yearning for that connection even before we hear a message about the gospel or church or spirituality or religion. It's already present within us because God has chosen to offer himself as a gift to his creation. And so I would even say, and and it's really fun to get into people's stories and hear the details of those stories because what you can often discern and what's fun to do is to ask questions and help someone else to discern the way God was actively pursuing them with his grace even when they didn't know him or even if they denied he even existed. When I hear these stories, what I realize is denial of God's existence doesn't doesn't take away his faith in you. He, He still continues to pour his grace and to work and to use circumstances and people and to be in the details of your life so that you can come into a revelation of the God who has always been there. And in fact, we can even go back to the old covenant for that and celebrate the poetry of the Psalms that celebrate the moment of our conception, the presence of God is there. You saw me when I was being formed in the darkest places. Before I even existed, you were aware. The psalmist goes on to say, before I even say a word, you already know about it because God is that intimately connected to all of us. Now, again, I'm not saying that we're, not, that we're all living in light of that revelation. That is why we evangelize. That is why we teach. That is why we communicate and write books and all of these things. But what I am saying is that we are not achieving and earning through our belief something that was not there before. God has still put his love on us. God has still been present to us even when we didn't realize it. And so not only does he celebrate, no one will have to teach his fellow citizen because they'll just all know me. Verse 12 says, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. I will forgive all their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. Now think about all of the discipleship programs that have been built around your passion for sinning less. That becomes the goal. That becomes the preoccupation. So we are building discipleship programs that emphasize at the center an idea that God has chosen to forget. And is it any wonder that we get off track We get so sin-obsessed and sin-preoccupied. Now, please, if you are fading, hang with me just because I can see some of you pulling back. So so don't pull back. Just hang with me for a minute. I'm going to talk myself out of heresy in just a moment. (laughs) I am not saying that sin is inconsequential. I am not saying that dealing with our sin is not something we need to do. That, that is not what I'm saying. And, and I don't know how to say it more than that, but I often get misunderstood of saying, well, already just believe sin doesn't matter. I don't believe it matters in the ebbing and flowing of God's love for you. 
That's all that I'm saying. It matters tremendously to the kind of life you lead and the quality of relationships that you enjoy on your journey to heaven. It's significant. And in fact, those who love me most are the quickest to come to me in private if they are concerned that I am pursuing a course of behavior that is either self-destructive or toxic to the people who love me. And I'm grateful that I have those people and I have no problem with walking alongside a friend and having the same conversation with them. I am not saying that it's inconsequential. What I am saying is God doesn't, and I'm not saying God doesn't care about our sins. I'm not saying that. Internet, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is God is not impacted by our sins the same way that we are impacted by our sins. He is not impacted by our sins the same way the people who love us are in relationship with us are impacted by our sins. And if he would, he'd be human like us. But he's not. He's divine. And so we need to be willing to listen to what the scriptures say about God's posture toward our sin because the thing that will keep you a poser is the lie of shame that forces you to pretend when you come to church and when you're in spiritual relationships. You've got to break free of that so you can be fully who you are even in your weakness because you understand it's already covered by God's grace. You're just trying to catch up with his generosity that you can't have for yourself at this point in time. But if you don't agree with that, that's fine. I just ask you please to articulate for your own personal theology, what do you think it means that you serve a God who's forgiven all your wrongdoing and has chosen to not remember your sins anymore? You do not have to articulate it like me, but you do have to come to a conviction and an articulation of what you think that might mean. Now, in looking at those, what I have done with that passage, and I'm just being personal and vulnerable, not academic, I want to share with you how sitting with those verses over years, have, how that's impacted me and healed me. And in that healing, that healing has caused me to sin less. Now, please pay attention to what I said, internet. Those are two separate words, not one. I didn't say it's maybe sinless. But it has made me sin less. And that lessening happens more and more every passing year. Not because of my moral fortitude, but because God has slowly healed the broken pieces that made the sin necessary in the first place. He's putting me back together. And significantly that has come through meditation on this new covenant text. So what I put together in my own personal practice that I want to present for you is two different approaches. One, I have a set of declarations that I make. Some seasons I make this every day. Some seasons, I actually make it twice a day, at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And then in some seasons, I just kind of practice it here and there whenever I feel prompted to. 
There's eight declarations and three personal affirmations. Now, the three personal affirmations flow out of the eight declarations. Just the way that I then wrap the ideas and personalize them for me. But all of this flows out of my understanding and my reading of the New Covenant texts. So, the universal declaration of the New Covenant prize. Number one, God's laws have been put into my mind. Your, te- your notes say uh, heart. And that was a typo on my part, but as a Native American, I respect trees too much to trash those notes and make new ones. Um, so you can just mark out heart and write in mind. God's laws have been put into my mind. Number two, very similar, God's laws have been written on my heart. I make these declarations because Paul says, and I believe it's Romans 16. Could be wrong on that one too. You can Google it. That's the thing about being 50. You you just don't have to pose that you know everything anymore. It's really, those of you who are waiting to become 50, I'm going to tell you, don't don't listen to the naysayers. It is great. (laughs) Just not caring is wonderful. And so, who cares? Not me. Um, Where was I? Anyway, uh, Romans, Paul says, The promise of our faith isn't conformity, it's transformation. And so he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's not overnight work, my friends. And so for me, declarations and affirmations have been some of the most practical tools for allowing a new atmosphere to be created between my ears. And so that's why I do them because it was hard to believe that that was true because there was so much evidence in my life that it didn't seem to be true. So you begin with this. God's laws have been put into my mind. God's laws have been written on my heart. Number three, God is my God. Number four, I am God's son or daughter, whichever you qualify for. Uh, I summarize these two statements with the simple phrase that I've just come to love. He is mine and I am his. He is mine and I am his. I love the intimacy of the possessive, possessive pronouns. Very comfortable with it. If you're not, that's fine. You're on your own journey. But I love the way to, I, I encapsulate those two ideas. Number five, I do not need to submit to a human admonition to know the Lord because I already know him. Now, again, that doesn't mean that I believe I can't learn from someone else. In fact, I believe I can learn not just from those with the gift of teaching, but I learn from every single person that I converse with. It doesn't matter our background or education level. I have learned that every person that I engage in dialogue with is my teacher. I can learn something from everyone. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is I have to recognize that knowledge of the Lord is not dependent on external information because it's already present in my heart because that's what God has chosen to do. He's just chosen to reveal himself to his creation. 
Now, we may need help in kind of walking that journey out and clarifying some understanding. All the, I'm not demonizing or suggesting that those things aren't necessary, but I still think that we begin with the possession, not a, with, with the position not of lack, but of abundance, because God has already chosen to reveal himself to us. So, I don't need to submit to a human admonition to know, admonition to know the Lord, because I already know him. Number six, God has forgiven my wrongdoing. If you've never done this, I would prescribe to you twice a day because it takes a while to believe that. Number seven, God will never again remember my sins. I feel like I've grown a lot in the previous statements. This one still hasn't reached here. I'm just confessing to you. That one's still hard for me. It is very difficult when I come to prayer or I think about my life, my self-concept is still very difficult for me to not define myself by my sin, my past sin, my present sin, or my future sin. So this idea that God has chosen to not remember my sin is baffling. And it's funny, I had this conversation like, well, I kind of believe that for my sins up to this point, but I don't, I don't, how can that be true of my future sins? And I try not to sound like a jerk when I say this, but so when this was written, all your sins were future. They were already future. And if we want to get really heady this morning, we can also say divine presence doesn't exist in past, present, and future. That's a time-bound reality that humans experience. The divine presence exists above that. He's not subject to time. So for God, this whole thing is playing out as an eternal now. We experience it as past, present, and future, but God doesn't. He's seen the end from the beginning. It's an eternal now for him. So none of this silliness about, well, that was true up until I accepted Christ as Savior, but since then, he remembers all those sins. Also, when you weren't on his team, he gave you more grace than he gives you now that you're on his team. That, that doesn't even make sense. But that's how most of us live our lives. We rejoice in the past forgiveness of sins. My friends, God has just chosen to not remember your sins. And obviously, that's a metaphor. I don't think he's lost his mind and become absent-minded, but I think you see the point I'm trying to make. But it's still the one that I struggle with the most. Then number eight. I am part of the new inclusive covenant with humanity because the former exclusive covenant is obsolete and has now passed away. This isn't crazy ideas that I just pulled out of the air. This is just what comes from reading this passage of scripture. Now, again, I want to emphasize, you don't have to articulate it the way I do, but you do need to own your own articulation of that understanding. It is critical for the health of your spiritual growth. So we move from those eight declarations and move into the three personal affirmations. Personal affirmation of the New Covenant Prize. Obviously, I put all of this in your notes. So for those of you who want to practice this in the incoming week, you'll have the tool in front of you to do that. So for now, what I would like for you to do is just close your eyes. I'm going to read these, and I'm going to read them in the first person. But you're welcome to contemplate them, not for me, but as your first person experience. So close your eyes for just a moment. 
Let's do our Trinitarian, a Trinity of breaths. In. My sins do not hinder God's love for me because he has chosen to forgive them and forget them. I belong to God and he belongs to me because he has chosen to give himself to me and accept me as his own. I can trust my heart because God has chosen to write his laws there. If I am going to obey God's word, then I must become comfortable hearing it in my heart. Would you all stand with me? We're going to get ready to take communion. As you do, I lead you with, leave you with this encouragement. Be defined by your identity in Christ and cease being defined by your sin. Live like you have a God who is forgiving. Yeah, I'm going to say it. Trust your heart and follow it. New covenant people who have the spirit of God inside you.